Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Keeping Up With The Classics. In today's episode, we will be discussing the myth of Oedipus the King, focusing particularly on the character of Jocasta. Since this is a juicy play, Maddie and I will both be tackling this one. So I will now hand over to Maddie to get us started. Okay, so the play is set in the city of Thebes, which is currently in a bit of a meltdown because a devastating plague has come completely out of nowhere and struck the city super hard. So the play opens with all the elders and like high priests of Thebes praying to the gods at Oedipus's palace, which is kind of like the main setting for the whole play, while also appealing to Oedipus, the current king, for help. This is where Oedipus makes his first entrance and he gives his speech, which sets up his character really well. We can tell he's got a bit of an ego because, I mean, he literally starts hyping himself up by going, I am Oedipus. And everyone's like, yeah, OK, we got it. But can you help us, please? Um, he then goes on to talk in a slightly OTT way about how deeply he sympathises with his people, talking about like, oh, I'm up all night, stricken with like grief for you guys. And basically, by the end of the speech, we get the impression that he's got an ego and he's prone to a little bit of dramatics, but he does have a heart and he does care about his people. And he's also smart enough to consult the oracles uh, about what to do. And he's also hella determined to get to the bottom of this plague problem. Uh, His intelligence and determination, as well as a bit of hubris, are pretty much his defining character traits, I think. So yeah, around this time, Crayon, or Creon, depends on how you want to say it, comes back with the prophecy from the Delphic Oracle that Oedipus has sent him to go get. Um, And it basically says to find the killer of the previous king, King Laius, and then either kill the killer or exile him from the land. Because the previous king, King Laius, died under like mysterious circumstances and his murder, his murder mystery never got solved. And that didn't sit well with the god Apollo, who is who, who is the one who sent um, the plague. So yeah, we get back with that prophecy, kill the killer or exile him from the land. And this kickstarts, honestly, a pretty failed hype session from Oedipus with the people of Thebes, where he's like, come on guys, you can just tell me who did it and it won't be that bad, um, publicly admitting to murder. And when nobody does step up, he starts to get a little bit like worked up and ends up just raining down curses left, right and centre and goes on about all the things he's going to do to the killer if he finds him and all the suffering that the killer's going to go through, which is something that's going to come back to bite him later. But yeah, he then sends for Tiresias, the blind seer slash prophet, aka everyone's favourite plot device, and then begins Tiresias, Tiresias versus Oedipus, which is basically Oedipus calling Tiresias an old man for 10 minutes straight, and Tiresias firing back at Oedipus by saying that he, Oedipus, is the reason for the plague. Which, as well as being hugely ironic, this interaction honestly just has some absolute comedy, comedy gold in it. Like, Tiresias finishes railing at Oedipus for like a whole page, and Oedipus just straight up goes, what? Still alive, like he's surprised that he hasn't just passed away halfway through. But anyways, at some point during all this bickering, Oedipus, he accuses Tiresias and Creon of conspiring together to evict him from the throne during this madness, which then leads to Oedipus and Creon bickering for another 10 minutes before Jocasta steps in to clear everything up. Yes, exactly. So Jocasta comes in and she breaks up the insane fight between Oedipus and Creon. And this is the first time that the audience really gets to see the entrance of Jocasta because she's been kind of referred to in passing before, but this is when we properly see her. And she's a very interesting character because she does seem to wield a lot of power for a woman. I mean, the people and Oedipus, they all seem to respect her a lot. And Oedipus does treat her 
almost like an equal, which is very unusual for a female and even for a queen. But yeah, we get we get a glimpse of their relationship. So after Jocasta breaks up the fight, this is when the bulk of the play's rising climax is Oedipus trying to figure out the murder of Laius and he's interrogating all these people trying to retrace um, his steps back to when he became a king to when Laius was a king before him and um, so the backstory of Jocasta and Laius is a very gnarly one (laughs) because Jocasta actually used to be the wife of Laius before before Oedipus became her husband and when they got married they were given a prophecy that their son would kill his father and marry his mother. Naturally in a situation like this you might expect the couple to you know practice abstinence only or something like that but no they didn't instead uh, Jocasta became pregnant and their son was born and they decided to deal with the problem only after he was born with a late abortion basically and um, they tied the baby's ankles together with and they they kind of drove a nail through his ankles which is really grim and they gave him to a shepherd to leave him out on the mountain to die essentially but the shepherd took pity on the poor baby and he gave it to one of his pals another shepherd who ended up taking the baby to Corinth because the king and queen of Corinth, Polybus and Merope, were without child and they were delighted to adopt the son. Now, I think that for most of us who have, who are aware of this, uh, this myth, we know where this is going because, spoiler alert, this is the big reveal, the son is actually Oedipus. A drunken stranger yells that he's not even his parents' child. So Oedipus gets very perturbed by this. He confronts his parents and his parents are like, no, no, you're definitely our son. But Oedipus isn't actually satisfied with this, so he goes to the Delphic Oracle and Apollo basically drags him by his scalp and says that you're disgusting, you're an abomination, you know, you will kill your father and marry your mother, you are gross. So Oedipus is absolutely appalled by this and he decides that he needs to get the hell out of Corinth before he kills his father and marries his mother. So he flees, and um, and while on the way to Thebes, at a crossroads, he sees this old man in a carriage with um, kind of his entourage, and um, they basically almost knock him off the road, and to cut a long story short, they end up having a brawl, and Oedipus ends up killing the old man. And he gets to Thebes, and at the time, Thebes is ruled by the Sphinx. And um, basically, to free the the people of Thebes, Oedipus has to answer one of the Sphinx's riddles. And he does. He saves Thebes. And because Laius has been mysteriously murdered, nobody knows how, Oedipus is offered the title of king, and um, Jocasta marries him. So I know what you guys are thinking, that old man wasn't just any old man. The old man was actually Laius and Oedipus had set the prophecy into motion without even realising. So as the interrogations go on, Jocasta starts to realise this and she undergoes her anagnorisis and she is so devastated by this revelation that she can't even take it. For so long she thought that she'd managed to 
cheat her fate and get away with it, you know, and manage to prove the prophecy wrong. But actually, she finds out that she hadn't. So she ends up committing suicide. And this is such a heart wrenching scene when Oedipus finds her body, and he's sobbing, and he takes her brooches, and he gouges his, his own eyes out, he reacts very violently to this. And the play ends with another really emotional scene, where the newly blinded Oedipus he um, addresses Crayon, he asks Crayon to take care of his daughters, Antigone and, and Ismene, he says goodbye to them, and he essentially exiles himself from the land, and thus the play is brought to its tragic, stirring conclusion. So that wraps up the story of Oedipus Rex. Just want to say sorry if that summary was a little bit different from usual. Basically, we had some Wi-Fi issues last night, so we had to record the summary separately from each other. But we're back together now to do the questions. So I'm going to hand over now to Faraby to ask me a few questions about the play. Right. So this play, it is a lot. (laughs) And um, within the play, the blame seems to lie solely on Oedipus for his ancestral relationship with Jocasta. And Jocasta is kind of portrayed as something which has been defiled by him. So to what extent do you yourself blame Jocasta? Well, I mean, I think overall, I think fate is probably the main person to blame. But if we're focusing on Jocasta, we've got to take into consideration the fact that this was what was fated and your fate is pretty much unchangeable. But the woman has to have some common sense. Like if she already knew that she was going to be fated to sleep with her son, she should probably think twice before she agrees to marry and sleep with a man who is half her age and she acknowledges has a striking physical resemblance to her previous husband. So I think there is an element of like, what were you thinking, sis, that that can't really be overlooked, you know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. Like, I I feel like with Oedipus, I mean, yeah, yeah, Oedipus, like, come on, he should have also had eyes. Yeah. But also, he did believe that he was the son of a completely different couple. Whereas Jocasta, she knew that she had given birth to the son. And sure, they left him out on the mountain to die, but never actually had any proof that he was actually dead. Yeah, and exactly. And then he rocks up, sporting such a resemblance to herself. Like, she should actually think twice about this marriage. I know. So, like, yeah, there was definitely a bit of blame that like lying on her as well. Like... She, she must have known in the back of her head when she left Oedipus on the mountain because she knew she wasn't directly killing him. She was just leaving it up to like fate or whatever. Even seeing the pinned ankles, because we see at the beginning of the play that he walks with a slight limp. And if she's been married to this bloke, she'll know that he's got messed up feet. He's got weird like ankles or whatever. And that's her fault. Surely she should have put a few pieces together here. Doesn't really take Sherlock to figure out this mystery, but... <laughs> Both failed terribly at this. Even Oedipus, who's supposedly meant to be so intelligent, he solved the Sphinx's riddle, yet he's so blind. I know. uh, Metaphorically speaking. (laughs) (laughs) Not yet, he's not. (laughs) So, Jocasta does seem to be written with a few flaws in mind. And what do you think Jocasta's primary flaw is? Oh, definitely her kind of like blind arrogance, which is kind of similar to Oedipus's, but specifically for her about fate and prophecy because she is so ignorant of when Oedipus is fretting to her about oh I was fated to sleep with my mum and kill my dad she was like don't you even worry about it mate I was I had I was given a prophecy that my son was gonna like sleep with me and kill my husband and that hasn't happened yet (laughs) (laughs) it is painful it is painful to read but it's like she's so blindly arrogant and I think the line is when Oedipus is like confiding to her about what the prophet Tiresias had been saying 
she goes a profit free yourself from every charge then like don't even worry about it my guy this isn't an issue for you like that kind of arrogance is just something else it's kind of hubristic it is also walking a fine line between well confidence and blasphemy you know like this is this is very out of order for a mortal to be filled with so much confidence against the higher powers don't you think yeah i agree and especially when it's so wrongly placed as well like she's so confident and it's just yeah it it actually hurts to read like I remember doing this in class and we were all laughing like actually reading it because it was like girl (laughs) I know pack it up Jocasta please (laughs) so um let's talk about Oedipus and Jocasta's relationship um you know they're written quite interestingly um and they both seem to hold similar reins so what do you think of the dynamic in their relationship do you think Jocasta's depicted more or less as an equal to Oedipus yeah I mean putting aside the obvious gross ancestral part of their relationship I do like the dynamic between them because Jocasta is very different to like other more traditional Greek wives that we've encountered before she as you said seems to be his equal and she's very outspoken and also a very logical character like she thinks quite methodically and when she goes in to sort out the bickering between Oedipus and Creon she approaches it with like a level head and she's like let me hear both sides of the story I don't want to make any rash judgments and she's also not afraid to chide Oedipus if he's being what's the word you're too stubborn basically she tells him off for being far too stubborn and too difficult and like even though he is the king of Thebes she's got no issue roasting him for that and I think that's awesome she can just rail at him which in hindsight now that I'm saying it is kind of like a parent chiding their kid, which is really horrible exactly. when I say it out loud. But I know there's such grim undertones to this yeah. myth that we can't even get into right now. I, know. I literally only but... just put that together now. Before I was like, yes, I love how outspoken she is. And now I've just put together that like <laughs> she's just a mother telling off her kid. And it's like, oh, oh really? No. That was like the only thing I could think about in class, but I didn't want to voice my thoughts because it was way too gross <laughs> to be spoken out loud. <laughs> Okay, so let's talk about Jocasta and Antigone for a second, because there seem to be quite a few parallels between them. I mean, they both commit suicide, and they're both tainted because of their relationship to Oedipus. So um, in your eyes, um, whose suicide do you think resonated more strongly with you? Because obviously, they had very different um, ideological motives for why they did what they did. I find they're two completely different suicides because I feel like Joe Casters was kind of like she was so consumed with horror and shock at what she'd done that she kind of did it out of shame. Whereas Antigone's yeah. suicide was more of a like rebellion against the state because that's her whole thing. She's like an independent, like breaks the box, goes against everything the state and basically crayon wants for her. She doesn't want to embrace any rules and she doesn't want to. It's kind of like Ophelia and Hamlet. By killing herself, she takes um, matters into her own hands and removes the power from other people. So I think her suicide is a very liberating and powerful thing. I think it's very different to Jocasta, who definitely killed herself like, I am so disgusting. I can't like bear to live with what I've done. So I'm just going to... Yeah. You know? <laughs> yes. In many ways, um, I don't know if you feel the same way, but I sort of see Jocasta's suicide as an act of submission to her fate mm. and she gives up whereas with um with um Antigone and Ophelia as you mentioned it's very different because 
it's kind of like the actions of the men in their lives, which resulted in their lack of agency. It ultimately results in their suicide because they take the power back into their own hands. So I do see, we're not saying that suicide is an act of empowerment. Yeah, no, don't take that away from this podcast, guys. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, definitely not. Please don't. But we can see how many view their suicide as an act of empowerment because they finally take the reins. It's a very interesting point yeah it's like Um, this final like action of rebellion so i'm gonna ask you a little question now because we were talking about antigone obviously she's got her sister ismene what are your thoughts on like their relationship and what are your thoughts on a lot of people have called them foils to each other i wanted to know your thoughts on this because i think that's quite a controversial uh question yes that is a very it is a bit of a loaded question i do see why people perceive them as foils to each other if we're just looking at it on a very surface level Antigone is more outspoken more rebellious and Ismene is a lot more docile and she is very law-abiding she does abide with the state and with Mm. Crayon however I think that it's kind of a disservice to just write them off as foils like that it's a disservice to Ismene because her rebellion she does rebel her rebellion is just very different from Antigone she kind of rebels within the constraints of the society that she's in despite the fact that her wings are clipped she does do what she can like when Oedipus is exiled to Colonus and Antigone goes with him Ismene is the mole she stays behind um, in Thebes and she takes news of whatever Crayon is up to and she takes it and she tells she feeds it back to Oedipus so it's not like she's completely given up on her family and she's so scared that she can't do anything it's just the fact that Antigone goes above and beyond because she I think you said this the other day she Antigone kind of breaks the box and kind of explodes out of yeah. it whereas whereas Ismene does as much as she can within the box so mm. I don't think it's that simple to label them as foils what do you think yeah exactly kind of continuing this like this little like box cage metaphor Antigone completely destroys it but Ismene while staying within it we can't discount the fact that she definitely pushes the walls as much as she can like her rebellion in her own separate way is still just as valid I think while not as like on the on a surface level, it's not as dramatic or as powerful as Antigone's, but I still think she's got a lot of depth of character there that needs to be like respected, and she deserves some credit for that. I think. Yes, I definitely agree, and I think this is more of a general point, not just pertaining to Greek mythology. But I often see that um, many contemporary feminists, I think that they think that to be empowered and to have agency, you have to literally crush the patriarchy and just like rise above the ashes of the patriarchy but I just don't think that that's a very healthy way of viewing feminism because I what makes what Antigone did any more valuable than what Ismene did because Ismene did rebel and she did it in a more pragmatic way one could assume and she didn't have to pay for it with her life because that sister was still alive at the end. (laughs) So she's arguably winning in life. I just don't think that you have to rise above and beyond necessarily to be a feminist. I was just basically saying I agree completely. It's all about individual battles and leaving your own small mark and like making a dent in it however you can. You don't have to crush it. As long as you're doing something, that's so much better than nothing. And just because you didn't blow the whole thing away like Antigone did, you didn't commit your whole life to the cause, that doesn't mean that what you did was invalid. Exactly. And you know, this kind of reminds me of um, talking about a modern parallel now. Mm. It kind of reminds me of um, the sisters Arya and Sansa Stark from Game of Thrones. Uh. Um, I'm not sure how familiar you are with Game of Thrones, but 
not at all familiar unfortunately (laughs) it's fine I won't go into it because it is like eight books long and um it's a lot but (laughs) Arya and Sansa they kind of seem to me as um I don't I don't think they were inspired I don't know but there does seem to be a lot of parallels between Antigone and Ismene because Arya is quite like Antigone she's very outspoken very defiant and she goes off and she does her own thing she literally runs away and um you know, because she's a noble lady. She does some very unladylike things, let's just say. Whereas Sansa is more reserved and she's more demure, just like um, Ismene. But she, at the beginning, not so much. She was a bit insufferable at the beginning, if I do say so myself. <laughs> but she does she does grow to be better and she does try to rebel in her own ways. And um, a lot of people just bash on Sansa because she's not an aria. But the world isn't big enough for for it to be just populated by arias you know we do need our sansas yeah that's actually bang on like i'm not super familiar with game of thrones as i said but i can see your point there like the world can't be full of loud characters like we need the quiet ones as well to like exactly not for them but like balance them out that's just like yeah exactly the the world's not big enough (laughs) for 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 too many arias arias i don't know i don't know how to say it (laughs) i think it's aria aria Oh, wait, no, I think I do know who Arya is. I have very limited knowledge of Game of Thrones, but I think it's coming to me now. (laughs) See, Maisie Williams plays her. Yeah, yeah, I know her now. So I think that this is a good point to wrap up today's episode. Thank you so much, Maddie, for a great discussion. Well, thank you for the really great questions. And, oh, speaking of questions, basically, I don't know if you guys follow our Instagram account. If you don't, it's at keepingupwiththeclassics underscore. Basically, we've discovered that there's a feature um, on Anchor Podcast where you guys, um, basically, we'd love to have you guys be a bit more involved in the podcast. And basically, there's a feature that means that you guys can send in audio clips of you asking a question. So I think the way this would work is on the Instagram account, if we let you guys know, probably like a week, a few days in advance of what the next episode will be on, you guys can send in your questions about the subject and we can answer it live and you can either be a part of the podcast with the audio recording so we can hear you or you can dm us um we'll probably have like a Q&A box on our instagram story um before the episode comes out so you guys can get involved as well and if that's something you guys would be interested in the dms are always open uh, feel free to comment send in the audio recordings we'd love to hear them so yeah sorry i'll stop waffling and wrap this one up so thank you guys so much for listening we hope you really enjoyed it and we can't wait to see you in the next one bye bye Thank you.